1: You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer,
2: more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indra Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. It's been a while since we've done one of our up-to-date segments where we check out the latest science and the news that captures our interest. So, Adam Bristol, welcome back to Inquiring Minds.
1: Thanks so much, Indre. It's great to be here.
2: What came across your desk recently?
1: Well, there's lots of really interesting uh, news in the science world. I have two papers for you. You know, usually I'm taking us to outer space or having plastic-eating bacteria or something like that. But I have um, one is going to be in the animal kingdom and one is going to be at the cellular level and looking at some interesting cellular processes and adaptations to the local environment that have heretofore been undiscovered, which actually creates a whole new class of adaptations. And I'll describe that to you in just a second. But the first one has to do with fish. Wait, 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 wait. wait.
2: The second one seems like that's the dinner. That's the meat. So why don't we go with that one first and then save dessert for later?
1: Okay, well, that's fine. So I think we all remember from our, you know, biology 101 or even before that the way we make proteins, we have DNA, DNA goes to RNA, RNA goes to protein. And of course you have proteins being really a string of these molecules called amino acids. They're all chained together and then folded like a crumpled piece of paper. Okay, And so the amino acids are important. Some of them are essential, some some we get from our diet, some we can produce. And this paper, which came out of the Netherlands Cancer Institute, which was published in Nature, I think it was actually either this week or last week, found that certain types of cancer cells, although this phenomenon doesn't seem to be restricted to cancer, but certain types of cancer cells are able to substitute one amino acid for another amino acid when the typical amino acid has been depleted because of the way the immune system is trying to fight it.
2: Oh, I see. So it's like all of a sudden it changes tactics. The immune system...
1: Exactly. And so what happens is... When the immune system is one of the soldiers of fortune the immune system, we have our T-cells. Okay. probably heard a lot about T-cells uh, when we think about coronavirus and the uh, protection that we can mount against it. T-cells being important agents uh, of, of effector cells in the immune system. And when T-cells get angry and activated, one of the uh, chemicals they secrete is called interferon gamma. And interferon gra- gamma is kind of let's get angry and let's mobilize here. And cancer cells respond to that in part by upregulating an enzyme inside of them, which is called Ido-1. And Ido-1 does a lot of things, but one thing that we know it does is that it actually will start to deplete the amount of tryptophan and amino acid inside the cancer cell. Hmm. And so the question would be- it's well, like starving it. Yeah, well, it's changing. It's 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 known to be changing the, me- me- the cellular metabolism. Got it. So the question would be is what happens to all those proteins that the cell would normally make and use that would utilize tryptophan? tryptophan. Yeah. Well, it turns out they have an alteration they can do where they can start substituting phenylalanine, another amino acid. And the reason why that is cool is because now the proteins are different, right? Because where they normally would have had a tryptophan, you can substitute a phenylalanine. The reason why this is cool because Most of these types of alterations are genomically encoded, right? They're mutations. Sure. They're called mutants. So this group is now classifying this type of induced alteration of proteins, substitutants. Instead of mutants, they're substitutants. I know it's like highfalutin substitutants, but the point is is that exactly. The point is is that this is a kind of flexible metabolic change that is not encoded in the genes, but rather is some kind of wizardry through the 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 enzymatic activity inside the cell so that that is all discovered and there's a lot of implications for cancer in this but what's cool is that it shows it seems to be much more widespread because there are lots of things where these substitutant if i think i'm pronouncing that right but it's like it's supposed to be the substitute mutant right the substitutant these types of proteins which they can identify are actually found more stably in the proteomes of cells in a lot of different spaces, if they're kind of diet induced changes or some sort of other change, like if Charcot Marie Tooth syndrome, which is neuromuscular syndrome, if you think of changes with aging or certain, mm. uh, you know, different types of restriction diets or depletion diets, like you can actually induce these types of substitutant activities in cells. So it just seemed to me from reading it, and, and truth be told, it's a very dense paper, and I think it's kind of cracking open a whole new space in cell biology that is heretofore, you know, kind of unappreciated and undiscovered. So hmm. it really feels like it's the thin end of the wedge of a really a really important area of cell biology.
2: Wow, that sounds really interesting. Maybe like a whole new way of thinking about fighting cancer.
1: It Possibly, and, yeah, and just knows? understanding how cells, you know, kind of adapt to their local environment or the, actually the intracellular environment. And then I guess if you understand what's causing them to have certain types of amino acid depletions, then you can probably start to make that link. I guess the question that comes to me right now as we're speaking about it is, is the tryptophan to phenylalanine substitution the only one? Or are there other amino acid substitute pairings that can also be a substitutant? Hmm. And I think that this is going to be a field we'll probably hear more of. The paper is called Tryptophan Depletion Results in Tryptophan to Phenylalanine Substitutants. And the senior author here is, I guess it's Ruven Agami. And again, lot, lots of these, it's a, it's a quite a wide group of number of universities, but it looks like some of the primary authors are from the Netherlands Cancer Institute in Amsterdam.
2: Cool. So before we get to the dessert, I kind of have like a pasta dish.
1: Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um, so on the show in the past, uh, I interviewed Angus Fletcher, who's a professor of story science, which is already one of the, like, the coolest things, right? If you can like be a professor of story science, that sounds awesome to me. Um, at Ohio State University, and he wrote a book called Wonderworks about literary inventions and sort of. I remember
1: the, this. I remember this. You remember that? Yes. Yeah.
2: And he infuses neuroscience in there and sort of ex- tries to explain why it is that we find stories so compelling. Sorry, that sounded very Canadian there for a minute. What do you mean, eh?
1: <laughs> All right. But no, this so, notion that that stories are compelling, and I think what you mean by that is if you think of mechanisms of persuasion, arguments, uh, our ability to remember information when it's couched in a story, these have been techniques for memory, for persuasion for, for millennia. And so something about the human brain seems to be Inclined to process information when it's in that narrative form.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's what we use to, you know, for fables and to, you know, teach our kids morality in a lot of ways. And also, it's just, they're just fun. Like, there's something that is just so wonderful about getting sucked into a good story. So it does seem like there's at least some part of our reward circuitry that at least resonates with storytelling, if not evolved, you know, in order to give us that sense of pleasure. But this paper that he just published along with um, Mike Benveniste. In the annals of the New York Academy of Sciences, first came across my desk uh, via Roger Beatty, a colleague of mine at the Society for the Neuroscience of Creativity. He tweeted about it. And so that's how I heard about it. And it was just published today, actually, or the 10th of March. I think that's today. (laughs) Anyway, very recently, when we're recording this. Yesterday. Okay, yesterday. So, in any case, you know, one of the things that I've been working on this semester with my students at USF is trying to devise new ways of measuring creativity. Because, you know, there's been a lot of people that have been working on this problem, but there still is a lot of dissatisfaction in many of the measures of creativity. And as we've been working through the literature, we do notice that the measures of divergent creativity, which is the sort of divergent thinking, you know, how many ideas can you generate in a moment? Um, so, like, a very common task is called the alternate uses task. So, how many uses can you think of for a brick? Go you know a lot of these divergent thinking tasks have this kind of list like structure you know you're 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 listing uses or or you're you're listing you know synonyms or or you know so- something right, that basically right. is like one word
1: but devoid of narrative content
2: There's no story there, yeah. right? I mean, may, and yet I still, you know, as you when I whenever I do one of these tasks, I do tend to find words that cluster together in a kind of story in my head. You know, so like if I start thinking about a brick, I might start thinking about it as a doorstop and then I picture the doorstop and think about what else the brick could then be used for in that kind of same environment and what would happen if I kicked the brick. Well, that would hurt. But anyway, you get the picture. Angus and Mike also felt that some of these divergent tasks were missing out on something. And so they wrote this paper suggesting narrative as an alternative to divergent thinking in terms of how we train creativity. And I think it's a really interesting idea. And at first you might think, well, you know, sure, that makes sense. And it just sounds like, you know, a lot of armchair philosophizing, But if you remember the uh, interview with Angus, or if you've read his book, you'll know that this is not a person who just scrapes the surface and doesn't go deep. And in this paper, he does a really great job, he and Mike, uh, of both laying out some of the um, shortcomings of the traditional divergent thinking tests, and then really talking about, or proposing a theory of narrative creativity. They point out that, you know, that the brain doesn't just think in terms of logical rules or symbols or bytes or representations, even though we neuroscientists rely on those kinds of metaphors to talk about thinking all the time. They point out that, in fact, the brain can also think in action and that action is composed of a cause and effect. And I really like this idea in part because, you know, one of the f- reasons we have a nervous system is because our early, you know, single-celled ancestors needed to move. They needed to get around and they needed to coordinate themselves and, and then, you know, their, their fellow cells as they became larger organisms in order to move, to get to where the food is and get away from where uh, the foes are. And he talks about both historically in terms of human civilization, the origins of, of this idea of, of action and consequence, but you know, also in terms of like how the neuron evolved. But he presents this theory, or they present this theory, and then they also present this training method. And within it, um, they talk about different aspects of how to train somebody to think narratively and to use narrative theory to be more creative. Mm-hmm. So if you think about like how you might perform in a divergent thinking task, like how many uses can you think of for a brick? There's a relatively limited number of ways you could train someone to do better, right? I mean, you know, maybe you could think about them visualizing it or using some kind of method of loci or like thinking about, you know, things that are very different. I mean, there may be a few strategies, but it seems like the space at which you would train is pretty limited, but if you think about creativity within the context of the or the framework of of narrative, there's lots of different things that you can then work on. So, for example, word building techniques, where you know you think about like sorry, world building techniques. If I didn't if I didn't um, say that, pronounce that properly where you might think about a particular world that you're describing and in that world there are um possibilities that maybe don't exist in our world. So for example, maybe there can be magic or maybe people can fly, something like that. And so that's one way of like first giving people another another kind of opening up a new set of of ways of thinking. Then there's perspective shifting. So, you know, instead of just being the person who's using the brick, what if you're the person who receives the brick or, you know, in some other, you know, way in which you're, you're, you're looking at the same story or the same problem, but from a very different perspective. And then of course, in literature, in drama, there's always conflict and action and something happens and then something else happens. And so he, he, he lays out a number of um, other of these kinds of narrative training techniques that rely on action generation and you know he he even even cites that he they created a workbook for the US army a year ago in which they sort of you know talked about this I don't know, I don't know. it's kind of interesting
0: across america bp supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing True overwhelming power sauce of destiny. Yes, the most
1: legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wick Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, Fries, and Sprites ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wick Donald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go and participate in McDonald's for limited time while supplies last.
2: But anyway, I think it's a really interesting paper if you're interested in measuring creativity and they they go back and they talk about a lot of the how this work builds on the work of a lot of others like Alison Gopnik whom we've also had on the show has talked about how children's story-based imaginative activities, you know, are ways in which the, the children learn. They they can explore things and and see cause and effect and and that, you know, facilitates learning. So this provides a way to sort of capitalize on some of those kinds of ideas in terms of training kids uh, to be more creative. There's something like, you know, <laughs> Ang- Angus is, is, is nothing if not exhaustive. There's like 17 of these ways in which the narrative approach can address gaps and contradictions in current research. Anyway, it's a, it's a long paper, but it's beautifully written, uh, as it should be for a professor of story science. <laughs> and it really i think opens up a whole new set of ideas not only for creativity researchers but ultimately for educators and anyone who's really interested in making themselves or their employees or you know their children more creative
1: so i guess i have a few thoughts i mean one is the way you describe it some of the techniques sound reminiscent of some of the techniques that are taught to say writers to get out of writer's block mm-hmm. right to sort of shift your frame of reference Yeah, just just shake yourself up so that you can you know continue forward in some creative endeavor. Yeah. So it sounds like he's been inspired by those, but I just want to understand. So he's not advocating going away from some of the traditional measures of creativity, but it's about ways at the like the ways that you can perform almost better on traditional measures, but because the techniques are almost enhancing your output you can use the same measures of creativity to measure your output, but you now you have a way you have strategies to perform better on traditional measures of creativity. Is that is that?
2: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I, I, you know, because I'm kind of glossing over a lot of the paper, I kind of just want to, you know, he's got three conclusions that he outlines that I think are important. Um, And this is sort of what he thinks that The narrative theory field, which has not really been applied to creativity research, is still a a long established and and respected field of of academic inquiry. And now he's suggesting we should apply it to creativity research, for one, because it offers a rigorously mechanistic and empirical approach to that kind of research that still preserves some of the breakthroughs of early creativity researchers, but also sets up uh, um, opportunities for both training and assessment. And that it goes beyond just this computational model of cognition that a lot of us cognitive neuroscientists get stuck in it. And that allows us to more fully account for, you know, all of the observed creative potential of the human mind and I think it it will feel it, it will sort of pass the sniff test uh, for a lot of people in the world, too, who sometimes when they look at our tests of creativity, just think, but that does not feel at all like how I am creative in, you know, in, in my in my real world life. So I think it provides potential for a lot more ecological validity. And then he also suggests that it can resolve gaps and inconsistencies in current creative theory, um, including the fact that this emphasis on logical mental processes like divergent thinking don't really explain how young children are creative. And in fact, you know that they're not very good often at these divergent thinking tasks. and yet they often excel at other forms of creativity. So, I think kind of bringing together the literature on young kids and adults through this like narrative theory lens is one way of getting a a deeper understanding of like how creativity, you know, should be taught and how it develops in a brain.
1: Yeah. Well, it sounds like this might deserve a return uh, appearance on the podcast.
2: Yeah, I'll be reaching out to Angus. Great, great. So, I think it's time for dessert.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, this is a paper that was in a recent issue of the Journal of Experimental Biology. It came from a research group out of the Ben Gurion University in Israel. Uh, Ronan Segev uh, is the primary author, and they're broadly interested in object recognition and really, you know, visual processing. Okay. And if Doesn't you take it sound a step like, back, there, it yet? well, hold on. If you take a okay. step back. It's super important stuff, it right? Is, I mean, you're right. visual processing, understanding how it works is not just intrinsically interesting because we are visual creatures and we can do some amazing things very quickly in processing complex images, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm looking at you now and you are, your face is shaded perhaps in a way that I've never seen it shaded before.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And yet I easily recognize you as mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And yet it's a novel stimulus. And if you think of the quantum leaps forward that computer vision has achieved and using machine learning models mm-hmm. to do some of these same things. This is enabling lots of cool stuff and perhaps perhaps uh, dystopic stuff in the future around these uh, these principles. So so I think the topic is interesting. But why this one caught my eye is because they studied a particular type of fish called archer fish. Okay, which if you just think for a moment of their name, archer fish hunt by shooting projections of water at, you know, basically uh, insects that are at the, the, the water's surface, even flying over it.
2: So wow, so they like, they like drown them in the, in the sky.
1: Yeah, they basically knock them into the water <laughs> oh, wow. through this, you know, surface-to-air missile of huh. water,
2: and then they eat them. They're like the snipers of the pond.
1: Pretty much. Okay. Pretty much. And so they are, for these, this group, you know, a, like a model system, you know, in which you can start to study aspects of visual perception, because the question is, how do these non-mammal fish, are? how are they able to, from under the surface of the water, recognize what is a fly or a spider or not versus twigs or whatever? Oh, that's
2: a good point, because you have all these different angles of refraction, oh, right? Oh, yeah. The, uh,
1: you know, the, the visual stimulus can be infinitely variable. Yeah, right. So the thinking is, let's try to study what it is about the visual stimulus that they're responding to, to to basically squirt their water or not. Like Mm -hmm. how do they recognize it as life versus non-life? And so if you look at the pictures, and I'll put these on the Patreon feed, that they have a little setup where they can teach them by presenting them with a little screen above the water, usually like a non-forced two-choice type of task where they're presenting stimulus on a little screen above Mm -hmm. them. And if they squirt at the right stimulus, they'll drop a little food pellet in. <laughs> so over time, they're able to discriminate at 70% or greater, you know, what the, the insect is versus the non-insect photo, right? Huh. So it's an experimental setup. But what's cool is then, of course, the authors, once they're able to show that they can even just train them up on this simple appetitive task, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of positive reinforcement task. Then you can start playing around with all the the, the, the categorical features. And basically what they're, what they're responding to are... A lot of the shape aspects versus tester, hmm. you know, it's symmetry, it's concavity, it's like, and they go through like eighteen huh. different categories and basically try to understand. Okay, well, here's how this fairly primitive visual system is accomplishing this task. How does that fit with mammals, other species, avian species? That, I mean, it's super interesting.
2: It's super interesting, but I still feel like it's such a hard task. If you're a fish in the water and you have like, you know, a fly flying, like, like. Yeah, like how do you tell whether it's well,
1: it, there's no doubt it's super hard, but remember animals that have evolved over time sure. to do some extraordinary thing to us, they do it. Now I think it's worth it's worth studying those because I think we yeah. learn about just the neural mechanisms that allow them to do that. If you think of I've always been amazed at like caching behavior, which is like, you know, the saving up of little seeds from mm-hmm. certain birds like mm-hmm. chickadees because they can literally take little seeds put them in places all around with the equivalent of like, you know, a soccer pitch, and then find them months later, because yeah. that's where they've been coming back to where they s- stored their seeds. It would be impossible for you and I to do something of that magnitude. And yet, that's an evolved, that's an adaptation, that's something they do extremely well.
2: Or the black cap chickadee, which like literally when food is scarce, grows a bigger hippocampus <laughs> so that it can remember where it right. catched its food. Right. Um, but it, you know, it sheds that brain region uh, in the springtime when it can see its food because it needs to fly.
1: I mean, birds do that too, if you think of just some of the annual uh, song, yeah. songbirds. Yeah, well, that's the black they cap will,
2: chickadee, yeah.
1: But I'm thinking just of so the expression of the song.
2: Oh, like of the song, yeah. Songbirds. Yes, right, yes. so
1: they when they're acquiring songs and then expressing their songs for their seasonal uh, mating behavior, you see those pretty dramatic neurological changes which will support that type of song learning and then song huh. expression. Yeah. Yeah, pretty was, amazing.
2: Yeah, speaking of song learning, I, I need to give a shout out too to Nancy Canwisher and her lab, um, where they discovered uh, these these neurons in the human brain that seem to selectively respond to singing, human singing, but not to speech or instrumental music. Um, so I kind of think mm. that's pretty cool.
1: I want to learn more. <laughs> We've been down this road. Oh. We've been down this road with other seemingly highly selective neurons. I know. Types. I'm thinking of the fusiform face area.
2: I know, but still, it's but singing.
1: Listen, <laughs> I mean, Nancy Conwisher is an extraordinary scientist, so I'm yeah. I'm interested. I'd love to learn more, maybe for the next up to date.
2: Cool. So, that's it for another episode. Thanks for joining us. If you want to hear more, uh, please subscribe. And if you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rayhalla, Michael Galgoul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer-Awald, Dale Le Master, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. And joining me is...
1: Adam Bristol.
2: See you next time. More what we see.
0: So much more BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022.